Well, hello everybody and welcome back. This is our daily devotional for Wednesday, January 31st, 2024. And I am delighted to be with you on this. Well, it's, it's a fine day in Virginia. I don't know what it's like where you are, but nevertheless, it's good to be here with you. I hope that your week is speeding along well. It's hard to believe. Uh, my goodness. Well, wait a second. Are there 30 days as of June on yeah, there's 31 days in January. Sorry, I had to go back. Remember, I record this a day in advance. I can't believe that by the time this airs, it'll be the last day of the month. Incredible, incredible how time flies. And yes, I know it speeds up and up and up and up. Um, but that's okay too, because we serve the God of time, the one who controls all time and yet is outside of it. That's one of those things that's hard for us to understand. We cannot grasp eternality, eternity. How can we understand a time when there's no time or where there's no time? Even when there's no time, we think about such things in, in quantifiable numbers and linear thought and point A to point B, but that's just how wonderful the God is that we serve and we ought to be grateful for it. Now. God shows himself to be wonderful in all sorts of ways, including the things that he provides for his people, the things that uh, that he does, the ways that he acts. And where we come to today in Acts chapter 20 is evidence of this. And also, we learned something today. We see something very valuable that might answer a question or two that you have about why we do things the way that we do things. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll dig in. Our Father, we thank you for this time that you have given to us and we pray that you would be with us in it. We thank you for your word, for all that is revealed therein, and Father, for the fact that you have given us your Holy Spirit and the testimony of your Spirit over these thousands of years. Um, Father, we praise you for all the ways that you have worked. Let us see your hand at work in your grace and in your mercy. And I pray it in Christ's name. Oh, and please guide us now. Amen. All right, so I've said it before. I said it either yesterday or the day before. I've said it before, I'll say it again. The book of Acts, in many ways, acts like the Genesis of the New Testament. Why do I say that? Well, take Genesis, for instance. We find all sorts of doctrine that is presented in Genesis, the, the foundations for why we believe what we believe, but it's revealed in narrative. It's revealed in story. And, and you can take your pick of that. You know, things like why we work. Okay, the, the doctrine of work is there. The institution of work is there. Why the family is set up as the family is set up. You know, when, when we had the story, the narrative of Adam and Eve, we find out that it's for this reason that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. Uh, we find other things like the doctrine of clothing, right? Adam and Eve being clothed, not running around naked. All, all kinds of things. But these come in the midst of story, in the midst of narrative. Such is the case with the book of Acts. We've seen it a few times back in Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 15 and chapter 12. We find the story of Paul and Barnabas going around and helping churches to elect elders. In Acts chapter 15, we find the council of Jerusalem where the presbyteroi gather together. Okay, They gather together to consider questions for the whole of the church. Right there, we find the doctrine of how God's church ought to be set up. 
And there's no such thing as just autonomous churches floating out here doing their own thing, this Lone Ranger stuff. No. Churches are linked together as the body of Christ, or at least they should be. And also, who's supposed to run the church? Should we have a pope? Should we have a bishop? No. No, we shouldn't. We should have elders that run the church because that's what we find in Scripture through story. And what we come to today is extremely valuable. And it touches on a subject that I find that some Christians, while they, not a lot, fall into this problem, but many of them say, well, oh, you want to know what problem I'm talking about? It's this, it comes down to this question, and it's been worded in lots and lots of different ways. People might say, eh, you know, Jews worship on Saturday. They think that Saturday is the Sabbath day, and some people still say Saturday is the Sabbath day. So why do Christians worship on Sunday? We all realize that this is a daily devotional, and I'm not going to go in-depth, super in-depth into this. However, realize that there are certain places in the New Testament that show us a major transition point in the Christian church, in the New Testament church. Um, and what you find is that worship of God, gathering together as the body of Christ, the Sabbath for New Testament Christians, the Sabbath for the present church, is not the last day of the week. It's the very first day of the week, that day referred to as the Lord's Day. Why? because Jesus was raised from the dead on that first day of the week, on, on a Sunday, and amongst other reasons. And again, we're not going to go super in-depth here, but you say, well, where does the Bible talk about this? I'm glad that you asked. Acts chapter 20, we're starting in verse 7. It says, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. All right, time out. Now, you might say, okay, Patrick, I didn't see anything about the Christian Sabbath being moved to Sunday. Well, realize the terminology here is very important. Just break it down. The first few words, on the first day of the week, we know that this is Sunday, all right? That the terminology Lord's Day is not used here, it will be later. They will refer to this as the Lord's Day, and it is treated as the Christian Sabbath. We know this also because we find no restrictions whatsoever about Saturday still remaining the Sabbath. In fact, if you go to places like Roman 14, um, Paul uses some pretty firm language about days and feasts and all that kind of stuff, and he says, if that's your conviction, okay, but you know, it, 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 one can say it's a day like any other day. So anyway, again, separate subject. I'm trying to trying to stay on task here so we can get done with what we need to finish. But later on, we see that term, the Lord's Day used. But we know that this is Sunday. Then it says we came together to break bread. Now, some people might say, oh, that's just eating a meal. Y'all, this is not euphemism in a bad way, but this is terminology used to describe the corporate gathering of God's people for worship, okay? The corporate gathering of God's people. This is Christian worship that we're witnessing. How do we know these things? Because Paul spoke to the people the very next line. And because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. Y'all, this may surprise you. May surprise you, but 
Um, while I prayed and thanked the Lord for the testimony of the Holy Spirit, the idea that Christian worship revolves around 11 a.m. on the first day of the week, on the Lord's Day, and it ends promptly by 12 o'clock so the Baptists don't get all the good tables at the restaurants, that is a new concept. Hour-long worship services. In terms of the scope of Christianity, whoo, that's new. That is really new. See, there used to be this thing where people came together on the first day of the week, recognizing it was Sunday, it was the Lord's day, the day the Lord had been resurrected. And they recognized that every single thing they had belonged to him. They recognized that, as John 15 says, and as we talked about on Sunday, they could do nothing without Jesus. And so people came committed to the study and to the preaching, to the admonition, to the worship of the Lord. And so this idea that we got to be out of here in an hour, that you're just going too long. Had a conversation with somebody recently about sermon lengths, and um, he had extremely firm opinions on how long sermons ought to be. And it's true, and, and it's true because of attention span. And, and, and I know some of the old province people might be saying, oh, whatever. But it really and truly, I, I, I pay very close attention to the clock. I really, really do, because people's attention spans are so short these days, but also, you know, commitment is a problem. And that's not a slight against anybody at Old Providence. This is a universal reality of, of the world that we're living in. Now, um, all of that being said, this is a worship service, right? This, this is God's people gathered together. It doesn't look like our worship services, but this is the people of God gathered together breaking bread. Does that mean that they took communion together? Don't know exactly. It's entirely possible. Some would even conclude that it was likely that they did this because we know that they took communion when they met together. Okay, We know that from, from Corinth and other places, but that's the paradigm here. Now, why do we worship on Sunday? Well, because this is the pattern that we find in the New Testament. Later on, again, you'll hear John talk about you know, the being in the Spirit on the Lord's day, for instance. We know that this tradition was carried out. There has never been a time in Christian history where any major faction of Christianity has said, oh, no, no, we need to go back to worshiping on Saturdays. There have been plenty of cults that do this. And I would say today, while I, I would not go so far as to call these groups cults, any time somebody reverts to Old Testament law, to find deeper meaning, you got an issue there. You got a serious issue there. Um, there are churches now, and I call them churches, they're not really churches even, but there are groups of people professing to be believers, and some of them may be, that say, well, we've got to follow the Old Testament dietary laws. We've got to follow the Old Testament feast laws. Um, and this looks all sorts of different ways, but some of them say we gotta, we can't eat pork because you couldn't do that in the Old Testament. And we gotta worship on Saturday. And, you know, these are the kind of things that Paul would look at, or especially the author of Hebrews would look at as what? What? Why would you go back to this? Right? Um, that's like somebody saying, well, you know, sadly, I've got an infection in my leg and I've got to go have surgery. But instead of all this modern anesthesia stuff, you know what? Just give me a, a musket ball to bite down on and we'll just make it through. Give me a belt of whiskey. And it's like, what? <laughs> Excuse me. Why? Why would you do this? Um, 
Nevertheless, I, I don't mean to be so flippant about this, but those that insist on Saturday worship typically go hand in hand with those that insist on worshiping uh, or celebrating the different feasts. Uh, following the dietary laws. The problem with this thing is that ultimately it's always pick and choose and prioritize. And, and you know, we could go on and on and on about this. But throughout the history of Christianity, the Christian Sabbath has been the first day of the week. It's been the Lord's Day. This is evidence as to why. Now, I talked a moment ago, we got to move on, but I talked a moment ago about um, level of commitment and how the one-hour worship service is, is a relatively new advent in, in light of, of the scope of, of 2,000 years of Christianity. The one-hour worship service is relatively new. Um, again, I, I get why sermons are shorter, because people's attention spans are less, but you tend to pay attention to that which you think is important. But at the same time, people are people. And I say that because of what happens next in Acts chapter 20. It's fascinating. When you read different commentaries and when you look at different opinions on this, we, we run into this guy, Eudemus, okay? Um, and and, and we'll, we'll read it in just a second. But something happens to Eutychus, and they blame him because he's a youth. They say, ah, oh, he's not paying attention. They talk about his faith. They do this. They do that and the other. Um, but y'all, there's a very practical reason behind this. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's read. Remember, Paul is speaking until midnight. He knows that he's leaving the next day. Verse 8, there were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. You know, what's Luke doing here? This is not Luke saying that Paul is just droning on or anything like that. He's just describing the situation like we talked about yesterday. Eyewitness accounts are important. And you can think about this upper room that they're in. You know, the there was no electric lighting. You know that, right? Candles everywhere. It's close to midnight. They probably got there first thing that morning. Uh, you know, it's been a long day. He's a young man. Um, uh, continuing down, and, and he's seated in a window, and he's falling into a deep sleep. Remember, they didn't have glass panes and things like we did, right? Verse 10, or, or excuse me, continuing on. I'll, I'll start at verse 9. And seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Y'all, terrible, tragic event here. And no, this is not God's judgment on Eutychus for falling asleep during a sermon. That's not what this is. This is a set of circumstances. That's it. He's a young guy. Um, one commentator, Calvin, actually talked about the fact that you know people give him such a bad rap. He didn't use that terminology. I do. People give Eutychus such a bad rap for falling asleep while Paul was talking, and they turn it into some major spiritual thing. But what Calvin notes is he's probably seated beside the window in an effort to stay awake. It's been a really long day together, and there they are in that setting. Right, So this is not a commentary on Eutychus or the quality of his faith or anything like that. It's just a tragic event that happened. And think about the setting of this tragic event. Think about how horrible this is for the church. One of their young men falls out of a window and dies. 
So what's to be done with this? Verse 10, Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Verse 11, then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. And talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Now, what in the world just happened with this? There are people that look at this and they say, oh, no, 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 that's it. literally Paul went downstairs and they all thought he was dead, but he wasn't really dead. No, he was dead. You know, when it says that he was picked up dead, that's like somebody saying, yeah, he went to bed and woke up dead. Uh, you don't really wake up dead, but it's that saying, right? They picked him up dead. He was dead. But then you have this very interesting interchange here with Paul. And, and some wonder at this. I, now, I don't know why Paul did things the way that he did things, other than I do know he was being guided by the Holy Spirit, right? So the ultimate question is, why did God lead him to do things this way? And there are different reasons, but we don't really know. What we don't have is some proclamation. What we don't have from Paul is, is some, some moment uh, of, of physical action that, that, you know, a laying on of hands necessarily, a, a statement pronounced. You don't have him saying, rise again in the name of Jesus or anything like that. And people wonder at this. They say, Paul went down and, and threw himself on the body. And then he says, wait, no, no, everything's okay. He's alive. What's going on here? Well, I'll tell you what my opinion is, and, and it's opinion shared by an opinion shared by others, including John Calvin. I think he's right in this. He thinks that Paul does this to not break the rhythm of what's going on in the church. He does this because we know already that there are people out there like the seven sons of Sceva who, who are out there trying to exercise demons in the name of Paul. What Paul has done here takes all the focus off of himself. It really does. I mean, admittedly, he does go down and, and cast himself on the body, right? But there's no proclamation from him. There's no authority claimed by him. It's him simply saying, oh, no, 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 y'all are mistaken. He's okay. And then what does he do? He goes right back up and he starts preaching. Let me tell y'all something. I've gone through some pretty interesting things in worship services in my day. Seen some really interesting things. Not so much here at Old Providence, but I can tell you some interesting, interesting stories, not for the internet, that I have seen in worship services. And it's hard to just go back to preaching. But that's exactly what Paul does, because this event, as terrible and as tragic as it is, um, think about, number one, how it would destroy that time that he had with them. But number two, think about the effect that this would have on the church at large. What, what this would do to people's perception of the church. Such a terrible thing. And yet, God raises Eutychus from the dead. And as a result, all of that is avoided. I think this shows us a few things, right? This is not treated as a typical sign, you know, where the sign points to the greater reality. We've talked about that over and over again. The value of the sign is in what it points to. This isn't the typical sign. Instead, what I think you have here is, quite frankly, a very utilitarian act of God. That God, knowing this situation, that God certainly recognizing the, the, the terrible nature of all of this, raises this man from the dead. And Paul has zero interest in claiming any glory for it. That, too, is a lesson. 
the glory belongs to the Lord in Paul's eyes. So he just continues doing his thing, doesn't call any attention to himself. And yes, there is application for that in the people that you watch on TV and the books that you may read by people that are supposed healers and all this kind of stuff. And where's the glory going? Well, it's going into a bank account to pay for a private jet, right? We don't see that from Paul in the slightest bit. In fact, we see him claiming nothing. You know why? Because there was nothing for him to claim. The power was never Paul's or Peter's or any of the other disciples. The power is always that of God. So there's a lesson for us there as well. Acts 20 verses 7 through 12 is some of the most interesting verses. There's some of the most interesting verses in God's word. And again, what is it? It's a story. There is so much to learn through story. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for this time that you've given to us, and we pray that you would give us grateful hearts, that you intervene as you do. Thank you for setting up the, the things the way that you've set them up. Thank you that we are no longer under the curse of the law, but instead, uh, from the words of your Son, if the Son of Man sets you free, you're free indeed. Oh, we praise you for this freedom. Let us not abuse it, though. Let us instead be devoted to you. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'd like to thank you all for being a part of this time. Lord willing, we will be back Thursday morning at 6 a.m. If you're around tonight, 6.45 to 7.30, we have prayer meeting and Bible study. We're rolling through Hebrews chapter 2 right now, so we would love to have you. Uh, nevertheless, I hope that you all have a wonderful Wednesday or whatever day it happens to be. Take care.